All right, well, good morning to be with all of you today. Um, I want to start with a question once I've got our Zoom up and running for gals joining us that way. Um, what are you like when you feel defensive? Now, some of you might even feel defensive at me just even asking that question. And if that's you, that's okay. But when you're pretty sure that you're in the right and someone is accusing you otherwise, and you just feel that indignance kind of welling up inside you, you know that feeling? How do you handle yourself in that situation? Well, what we're gonna see today is some outstanding guidance from Paul in 2 Corinthians for how to handle those days when you're just feeling really defensive. And I wanna let you know from the outside that I am bringing the word today. We are going to drink deeply from scripture. I gave myself what I thought at the time would be a fun challenge. It proved to be quite a challenge to cover four chapters of scripture today as we're gonna finish out this book of 2 Corinthians. And because of that, this is not going to be a half hour that is packed with fluffy stories and cute illustrations. We are going to scripture this morning. But uh, I have to say, I think in the process of writing this, I think this might actually be one of the more focused and honed in messages that I've written, because it's really important to me that we get some help with an answer to this question. And I'll be vulnerable for you. I've been feeling this way lately. I can't share with you a situation, but there's something going on in my personal life that's been making me feel kind of defensive. And as I was studying these passages over and over, I just kept feeling God saying, I have got wisdom here for you. And so a lot of what we're going to be pulling out today is what God's been doing in my own heart in helping me deal with this. And so that's why I'm so excited to share this with you this morning. And so if you're in a place where you're navigating a, a relationship or a conflict or something that's making you feel defensive, I hope you will be very blessed with what we're about to see in 2 Corinthians this morning. Three weeks ago when I last taught we explored what it looks like to find our confidence in God. And for many of us who struggle with feelings of inadequacy, we were comforted by chapter three's reminder that we don't need to minister to anyone else because of our own qualifications or our own confidence, but that our capability comes from the spirit that shines from within us. And then over the intervening chapters, we were blessed to have Jana teach for the first time as we saw the beauty of moving from messiness into joy. And Angie challenged us last week to be people who are generous. And now in today's chapters, we're gonna see a lot of Paul's personality come out as he deals with feeling defensive himself. We're gonna see him reveal what he thinks are some of his own weaknesses. We're gonna see him playfully and kind of sarcastically call the people that he's being compared with these super apostles. That part's kind of fun. And then through each of these chapters, we'll see him deal with what it's like to feel defensive and how to defend yourself in a godly way. Now, remember that the context for this letter is that the Corinthian church, the Corinthian church that Paul planted, is kind of turning on him and the gospel message that he had shared with them. And they were being drawn to other popular voices and popular messages in their culture. They were questioning Paul's authority, and they were asking him to prove his credibility. And we saw him beginning to deal with that when I taught on chapters three through five. And now after he's gotten to, to invest in some other topics, he's going to come back to what he started in those first chapters and finish out his defense in chapters 10 through 13. Paul begins by kind of addressing what they were accusing him of not being a very good public speaker. And, you know, now 
I have fears about being accused of that myself. But for many of you, that's probably not the worst insult that someone could pay you. You'd be like, you know, I, I own that. That's fine. I don't, I don't mind if you don't think I'm a good public speaker. But in Paul's day, this wasn't quite as silly as it might sound for us. In Paul's culture, being a great orator, a great speech giver, was kind of like being the movie or the rock star of his day. Giving a great speech was entertainment in that culture. And for someone who was such a great communicator as Paul was, I mean, for heaven's sakes, his letters are, are commemorated in our Bible as spirit-inspired words of God, that this might have been a little bit more of an insult to Paul than we would initially take it. But he's going to admit that he's not on the same level as some of the other speakers of his day. We're going to see his personality come out even in the opening paragraph of chapter 10 as he frames his defense in the language of war and weapons. And, and initially that might seem a little bit melodramatic, but think about this. When you feel defensive and someone said something hurtful to you, have you ever said, it just feels like I got stabbed in the back? Or like those words landed like a knife to the gut. You know, we too frame oftentimes these kinds of conflicts and situations in war language, in battle language, in weapon language. And again, let me just validate that if you're feeling that right now this morning, if you're actively in the middle of a painful relationship or, or some kind of conflict, I have been praying that God would use what we're going to see in his word this morning as something that will bring you clarity and encouragement in that. So hang with me. But it is understandable that we might feel like we're gearing up for battle. And Paul probably did too. So as we start off this morning in verse three, Paul says, for though we live in the world, we do not wage war as the world does. The weapons we fight with are not the weapons of the world. On the contrary, they have divine power to demolish strongholds. So what are these weapons that Paul is talking about? Elsewhere in Ephesians six, we had Paul outline for us the spiritual weapons that all of us have at our disposal. We have the belt of truth. We have shoes of peace. We have the shield of faith and so forth. These are powerful and effective instruments of both defense and the sword of the spirit as our one offensive weapon. Paul goes on to explain that thoughts contrary to the gospel of Jesus Christ are like attacks on the truth. And so he urges us to take, every, take captive every thought and make it obedient to Christ. Paul here is referring to their thoughts rather than his own. He was determined to confront the human-made systems of thought that the Corinthians were beginning to turn to that were actually leading them away from the knowledge of the truth of God rather than towards him. But I don't think it's a misapplication of this verse when we use this to teach it to ourselves too, as we often do. I think whether we are confronting a thought that's contrary to the truth of God in our own hearts or in someone else's, to take that thought captive and make it obedient to Christ is a great principle either way. Either way, God's truth wins. So tactic number one in dealing with a situation that is making you feel defensive is to take every thought captive to Christ. So recognize it. And acknowledge it when you're feeling defensiveness well up inside you. Recognize that your mind might be gearing up for battle in that moment. Put on the armor of God. Clothe yourself in righteousness, in peace, in truth, in faith. 
And then you're ready to take captive every thought for Christ. Your own thoughts, your attacker's thoughts, either way, run everything through the filter of the gospel of truth. Now, next, we're going to get some help from Paul in analyzing what's going on. Because before you can accurately address a sticky situation, it helps to frame the issue or to put it in its proper context. For Paul, he, he put the issue into context by stating to the Corinthians, you're judging by appearances. They were being heavily influenced by other great speakers who seemed like better spokesmen for the church than they thought Paul was. And so Paul begins by calling them out on that. He says, if, any, if anyone is confident that they belong to Christ, they should consider again that we belong to Christ just as much as they do. Keep grounded on what's important, not appearances, but on our security in Christ. Now, here's what I think that Paul admits that he might have gotten kind of hit in a personal spot. He says, for some say, his letters are weighty and forceful, but in person, he's unimpressive, and his speaking amounts to nothing. Now, again, for a communicator as skilled as Paul was, this accusation probably did sting a little bit. But Paul reminds himself that comparing himself to others is not only a losing game, it is pointless to waste energy chasing what doesn't ultimately matter. He says, we do not dare to classify or compare ourselves with some who commend themselves. When they measure themselves by themselves and compare themselves with themselves, they're not wise. We, however, will not boast beyond proper limits, but will confine our boasting to the sphere of service God himself has assigned to us. Sisters, when you're feeling defensive, humbly analyze that situation Take that thought captive and frame the issue. Are you feeling defensive because you are comparing yourself with someone else or comparing yourself with what you think you should be that you feel like you're, you're not? Don't do that. Instead, focus on what's important. Focus on the sphere of service that God has given you. Don't get pulled into the weeds on other things. And remember that just like we don't need to prove our own competency or adequacy in our own qualifications, we don't have to justify to others who are making us feel defensive because God does that. Paul ends this section saying, for it is not the one who commends himself who is approved, but the one whom the Lord commends. Ooh. Right? That's a relief, isn't it? To remember that the Lord is commending what he has called us to. And if we are being obedient to him, we don't need to defend ourselves about the ways that we might feel adequate or inadequate. That's not our responsibility. But for some of you, you might need a little breather. Is this feeling a little bit heavy for 945 in the morning? <laughs> if it is, then maybe Paul's about to help us out here because the next tactic that we see him take is to lighten the tone. <laughs> I love Paul's approach in the first chapter or first verse of chapter 11. He says, I hope you'll put up with me in a little foolishness. Yeah, please put up with me. <laughs> I think Paul too is realizing this is getting heavy. Let's just lighten the tone a little bit. And he goes on to use an analogy of how he sought to present the Corinthian church like a beautiful bride to God as her husband. And yet, just like the first bride in history was led astray by the crafty lies of the devil, so the Corinthian church 
is at risk for being led astray by the crafty lies of what Paul teasingly now calls the super apostles. <laughs> I haven't seen a cartoon with that yet, but uh, I'm sure someone could make it uh, at some point. Clearly in their letter to Paul, you know, this is the, the, the dialogue that he has here is a little bit frustrating because we only get to see his side of the story. We don't have the letter that they sent him, but clearly they had implied to Paul that he is not as cool as the super apostles. And while it may have gotten under his skin, now he's finally ready to address it directly, but he does it lightheartedly. I do not think that I'm in the least inferior to those super apostles. I may indeed be untrained as a speaker, but I do have knowledge. Do you hear how Paul is beginning to balance both an honest, if self-effacing view of himself while not being their doormat? He's not overly conciliatory, just like, you're right, I am lousy at all I do. No, he's not gonna dishonor God in that way, but he's being honest. I may be untrained if that's the case. You know, that's fascinating about Paul. I look forward to finding out some more of his backstory when we get to meet him in heaven someday. But he says, it's not that I don't know what I'm talking about. I'm not inferior. I do have knowledge. And in this mindset now, he's ready to tackle the tension head on. One of the ironic things that the Corinthian church seemed to be holding against Paul, and this is really ironic, is that he wasn't expecting them to financially support him in all that he was doing. And I think even though we only have Paul's side of the conversation, I think that what they were implying is kind of the way that we might judge a professional if they offer their services at a significant discount or maybe really, really cheaply. We just kind of have this weird mentality of thinking if they're that cheap, they're maybe not as good as the one that's really expensive, right? And I think they're judging Paul saying these other guys are wanting all kinds of support from us and you're not asking us for anything. But Paul says, was it a sin for me to lower myself in order to elevate you by preaching the gospel of God to you free of charge? I robbed other churches by receiving support from them so as to serve you. And when I was with you and you needed something, I was not a burden to anyone. For the brothers who came from Macedonia supplied what I needed. I have kept myself from being a burden to you in any way, and I will continue to do so. As truly as the truth of Christ is in me, nobody in the regions of Achaia will stop this boasting of mine. Why? Because I love you. God knows I do. Paul here is defending himself directly, but don't miss that his motivation isn't to make himself look good. It's to establish the love that he has for this church. We do well when we check ourselves, when we feel defensive, to think, are we trying to defend ourselves to make ourselves look good? Or are we trying to help these people understand that we love them and want what is best for them? Now, Paul may have been lighthearted and self-effacing before, but we're about to see either a lot of sarcasm out of him or at least some extraordinary genius coming through as he takes this discussion now to the next level and as he does something kind of fascinating, he seeks to adapt his defense to their way of thinking. He kind of accommodates the way that he's gonna to talk to them according to the things that they've accused him of. And apparently they had labeled him a fool. They criticized him so often for being attacked, for being imprisoned, for being beaten. They struggled to, to respect a leader who seemed that he could be that easily defeated. 
interestingly, wasn't Jesus often criticized for that too? But Paul was criticized for not appearing to always be this victorious super apostle. So he decides, I'll talk to them in the way that they're accusing me of. He says, I repeat, let no one take me for a fool. But if you do, then tolerate me as you would a fool so that I may do a little boasting. In this self-confident boasting, I'm not talking as the Lord would, but as a fool. And now he's going to get ready to boast like a fool. So he adapted to what they were accusing him of, and he just decides to go with it. It's so ready. He gives a doozy of a speech, and we're going to read right through it because there's no way I wanted to paraphrase this. Whatever anyone else dares to boast about, I'm speaking as a fool, I also dare to boast about. Are they Hebrews? So am I. Are they Israelites? So am I. Are they Abraham's descendants? So am I. Are they servants of Christ? I'm out of my mind to talk like this. <laughs> I am more. I've worked much harder, been in prison more frequently, been flogged more severely, and been exposed to death again and again. Five times I received from the Jews the 40 lashes minus one. Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was pelted with stones. Three times I was shipwrecked. I spent a night and a day in the open sea. I have been constantly on the move. I have been in danger from rivers, in danger from bandits, in danger from my fellow Jews, in danger from Gentiles, in danger in the city, in danger in the country, in danger at sea, and in danger from false believers. I have labored and toiled and have often gone without sleep. I have known hunger and thirst and have often gone without food. I have been cold and naked. Besides everything else, I face daily the pressure of my concern for all the churches. I love that last sentence. <laughs> I've been attacked, imprisoned, starved, beaten, and besides that, I'm constantly stressed out about church. <laughs> and as a pastor now, I find this sentiment of Paul so endearing and so inspiring. Do not ever take for granted how deeply your pastors are constantly thinking about the needs of the church. But now that Paul has gotten all of that off of his chest, he's going to take an incredible turn and show us something truly life-changing. And that is to embrace God's power in our weaknesses. Embrace God's power in our weaknesses. He says, who is weak? And I do not feel weak. Who is led into sin? And I do not inwardly burn. If I must boast, I will boast of the things that show my weakness. The God and Father of the Lord Jesus, who is to be praised forever, knows that I'm not lying. He'll go on after this to mention this strange story about sneaking away in the middle of the night, being lowered down in a basket. And if you weren't here last fall, Pastor Paul preached, or Pastor Paul, he would have done a good job too. Pastor Rick <laughs> preached on this passage here and this story. And uh, if you haven't heard that, it was in November. It was the last sermon in the regifting series. It was titled Shields Down, and you can find that on autumnrich.church. He brought out some interesting things about Paul and his weakness. But I want to bring out the end of, of chapter 11 and into chapter 12, that when Paul is defending himself, he didn't minimize his weaknesses. And he actually didn't even try to justify them either or pretend like they didn't exist. 
rather he embraced them. And this isn't something that he did in a dysfunctional way to justify his failings or, or just to kind of let himself off the hook for places where he felt like maybe he wasn't measuring up. But as we saw before, like his security and his confidence, he's embracing his weaknesses as an opportunity to let Christ shine through there too. He says, even if I should choose to boast, I would not be a fool because I would be speaking the truth. But I refrain so that no one will think more of me that is warranted by what I do or say. And a couple of verses later, the verses that are some of my very favorite in all of scripture, he reminds us that God says, my grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. And then speaking with for himself with wisdom that we do well to internalize. Therefore, I will boast all the more gladly about my weaknesses so that Christ's power may rest on me. That's why, for Christ's sake, I delight in weaknesses, in insults, in hardships, in persecutions, in difficulties. For when I am weak, then I am strong. I bet the super apostles weren't saying that. They were demonstrating their superior speaking, their victorious outcomes. No one was beating them up. No one was imprisoning them. No one was accusing them. They were fed. They were being well supported. But Paul's saying, no, all of those things, those are opportunities for God's power to shine through. When I am weak, then I am strong. Now, there's a million things we could talk about and focus in on here, and I'm not going to dwell on this section very long because we have a treat for you. For next week, we actually have, uh, I believe it's four ladies who are going to be talking about what it means for them to let God's power shine through their weaknesses. So look forward to that next week. You'll get a lot more on this section. But I do want to bring out some more beautiful applications of this passage that we're going to see as we finish out this book. Think about his comments that Paul says he actually delights in weaknesses, in insults, in hardships, in persecution, in difficulties. If you're at a place in your life where you can say that, it kind of makes defensiveness melt away, doesn't it? What would you feel defensive about if that was true of the way you thought? After this, Paul says, have you been thinking all along that we've been defending ourselves to you? We have been speaking in the sight of God as those in Christ. And everything we do, dear friends, is for your strengthening. That's pretty powerful, isn't it? How would it engage the way that you handle yourself in a tough conversation, in a difficult confrontation, if you could say that everything you've been saying has been in the sight of God as those in Christ, and that everything that you're trying to do is for the strengthening of the dear friends that are criticizing you? That's why I'd say that speaking in full awareness that God hears you and to speak for the good of others is the final tactic that I'm highlighting from these chapters. These are great principles that we can find to help us from scripture. And I hope that you will find them as helpful as they've been for me. Paul finishes out these chapters saying, for I'm afraid that when I come, I may not find you as I want to be. 
And you may not find me as you want me to be. I fear that there may be discord, jealousy, fits of rage, selfish ambition, slander, gossip, arrogance, and disorder. I'm afraid that when I come again, my God will humble me before you. And I will be grieved over many who have sinned earlier and have not repented of the impurity, sexual sin, and debauchery in which they have indulged. I'm glad that Paul included this. I'm glad that he was honest about the things that he was concerned about on their part and, and maybe how he would feel about being there with it. I'm glad that he does this because I appreciate that he's not just saying, if I just admit, you know, God's in control, God's got the power, I just get to shine in the midst of all my weaknesses that everything's going to be okay. It's, it's not necessarily. There's still a mess and Paul's still expressing a lot of significant concern here. But it's helpful in chapter 13 to see the applications that he brings out about how he intends to actually conduct himself when he goes to see them in person. He begins in a very practical way. He says, this will be my third visit to you. Every matter must be established by the testimony of two or three witnesses. He's not going to go on his own. He's going to bring other people who can kind of keep a, a neutral watch, a, a close eye on this. And incidentally, this is the same principle as the verse in Matthew 18 that is so often misapplied, that verse where when Jesus said, where two or three are gathered in my name, there I am with them. He wasn't saying that to imply that whenever there's a group of Christians together, if there's two or three of them there, that he's actually there, like as if that the spirit of God isn't with us when we're, when we're alone. I mean, that would be silly. We always have God's presence with us, whether we're alone or whether we're, we're with two or three others. What this means is this principle that when we're going into these difficult kind of confrontational conversations, that we can depend on the spirit of God to be there with us, to give us the wisdom and, and the strength that we need to conduct ourselves as he would. And this brings me to the first of the final three application points that I want to leave you with today. And the first one is to rely on God's power to help you in confrontations. Paul continues in the beginning of chapter 13 saying, I already gave you a warning when I was with you the second time. I now repeat it while absent. On my return, I will not spare those who sinned earlier or any of the others. Since you are demanding proof that Christ is speaking through me, he's not weak in dealing with you, but is powerful among you. For to be sure, he was crucified in weakness, yet he lives by God's power. Likewise, we are weak in him, yet by God's power, we will live with him in our dealing with you. Ask God to help you. Rely on his power. Ask him to see, help you see the situation as he does. Ask him to give you power to speak truthfully, to take every thought captive. Ask him to help you keep your eyes fixed on him. And ask for his grace so that you're not at risk for defending your own insecurities. And then the second application is to examine yourself, to look for Christ in you. Examine yourselves to see whether you're truly in the faith. Test yourselves. These are the words that he actually said to this church. Do you not realize that Christ Jesus is in you? Unless, of course, you fail the test. 
Now, I don't think that Paul is saying this in a mean-spirited way. He's not harsh with them. Remember, he is the one who led them to Christ in the first place. He's expecting this to be a positive answer. And I, I'm not necessarily saying that you should use this verse in the middle of a hot debate or conversation with someone. I don't think it's going to go great if in the middle of an argument you blurt out, are you even a Christian? Test yourself. <laughs> but we can certainly check our own heart. And in the right situation, and in the right way, in a wise way, we can lovingly point others to maybe do that themselves too. I, I think this kind of examine yourself, I think this kind of self-check looks like this. When you look at yourself in the mirror, do you see someone in whom King Jesus is living? When you listen to what comes out of your mouth, does it sound like the words that he would say? When you find yourself with fellow Christians, do you respond to them as your brothers and sisters in Christ? And when you settle down and you quiet your mind and your heart to pray and to wait for God, do you know and sense the presence, the life and the love of Jesus close to you, within you, warming and sustaining you and guiding and guarding and checking and directing you? Paul longs for this so much. And he declares in verse 7 that he would rather that he failed the test and that they passed it than that they would all fail. Because it wouldn't say much about his ministry and the work of God in this church if it turned out that he was a genuine Christian and they weren't, right? It isn't a matter of only his wanting to demonstrate his own status against theirs. He is interested in pursuing God in their lives, even if that means that he appears weak and they appear strong. And I think with that mindset, we're ready to arrive at our final application from 2 Corinthians. And that point is to strive for full restoration, for encouragement, for unity, and for peace. 2 Corinthians ends this way. Finally, brothers and sisters, rejoice strive for full restoration, encourage one another, be of one mind, live in peace. And the God of love and peace will be with you. Greet one another with a holy kiss. All God's people here send their greetings. May the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all. How much smoother would all of our relationships be if we had verse 11 memorized, if we were always striving for restoration in, everyone's, in every situation, if we were always seeking to encourage one another, if we wanted to be united in our intentions, we wanted to live in peace. Now, I live in the real world. I even live in the real church world. And I know that even when we have these good intentions, we can't always just make it happen this way. And I think that's where we can take encouragement from another writing of Paul when he writes in Romans 12, that when seeking peace, he puts it this way, if possible, so far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. We're not responsible for making this happen in every situation, but we are responsible for ourselves. And if possible, so far as it depends on you, you can seek to live in peace, in unity, to encourage and to bring full restoration. So with that, 
I'd like to end here and I'd like to just pray for us and pray that the spirit would help us to be women that please him in this way. Dear Father, I thank you for the wisdom of your word, for the way that it practically helps us in so many ways. I thank you for what you have used in 2 Corinthians to touch my heart, to teach me, to grow me. And I, I hope that you have, uh, you have comforted and brought clarity to other women here this morning through your word as well. Lord, I do ask that when we find ourselves in conflict, in difficult situations, in times when we feel defensive and, and our natural instinct might be to go to war and try to, to either defend ourselves or, or worse yet, to even hurt the other person or to let them know how they've hurt us. I pray that you would give us the power in those moments of weakness to rise above that, to accurately analyze and address the situation, to maybe be a little bit more lighthearted about it, turn the temperature down. Lord, help us to embrace our weaknesses so that your power can shine through on it. Help us to rely on your power to help us in those moments. Give us the wisdom that we need. And Lord, we do ask that you would help in these situations to bring it to a point of restoration, that you would give us the ability to rise above our own natural thoughts and actually encourage the other person to seek their good, to lovingly point themselves to you, to look for your work in our own lives, and that you would bring us to a place of peace. We love you that we can depend on you to help us in all of these situations that we face. Thank you for not leaving us alone in that, but for promising to walk alongside, to be there with us. We love you, Lord.